Okay. Hello, my name is Grace Ramsey, and I will be having a conversation with Elsie Hupp for the New York City Transoral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is February 21st, 2017, and this is being recorded at 295 Lafayette Street. Cool, thank you for making it out. Thank you. Um, So I noticed on your Facebook it says that you uh, grew up in the Midwest. Uh, that's correct. You want to speak about that a little? Um, well, I grew up in north suburban Chicago in um, what was generally a rather wealthy, rather liberal area. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I grew up in what I would describe as a conservative Christian bubble, but um, I was fortunately sheltered from a lot of the um, toxic politics that the Christian right has become involved in. Um, so, and also this was because, um, I, you know, there were a lot of more liberal Christians in the community that I grew up in. Um, <clears throat> so it was interesting. It was not interesting. It's, um, it was, it's strange growing up in a community that in and of itself is not abusive but at the same time is invalidating. Um, you know, I, I didn't really have a sense of, be, you know, having to suppress being transgender. Um, I did have a, a sense of having to suppress being attracted to men. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I remember as, I remember as a small child, um, my parents went away for a weekend, and there was a parent from my school who was um, babysitting for me and my brother, and um, I told her that maybe God made a mistake and should have made me a girl. And I don't remember what she said, but she never told my parents. And that was sort of my experience growing up, is that transgender people just didn't exist. Um, there, there wasn't any like acrimony towards them. They were just invisible. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, with regard to being gay, it was very much a hate the sin, not the sinner type thing. Um, and uh, I only got small glimpses into um, people's acrimoniousness towards gay people. Um, like my my eighth grade teacher saying. Well, I know I'm not supposed to hate the gays and the lesbians, but dot, dot, dot. Um, So I sort of just drifted out of that culture um, in high school, um, because I went from (laughs) being in um, uh, an evangelical Protestant bubble to being in a more um, ecumenical... um, Christian bubble, which was um, Jesuit Catholic school. In general, the the Jesuits are very open about many things. Um, And at Jesuit school, um, you know, being a sexual minority was something that was very don't ask, don't tell. Um, Like, teachers weren't allowed to talk about it, and there were several gay members of faculty and staff at the high school who were very much not out, but everyone knew. Um, and so 
you know, there weren't a lot of role models, um, adult gay role models, um, in my life in high school. Um, <clears throat> I, I remember when I was, um, taking, uh, curricular dance class at school, um, my dance professor, um, after I came out, she's like, by the way, I'm a lesbian. And it was just very, very validating to know that there were other gay people out there. Um, and I actually reconnected with her, um, like, a couple years ago, and I'm Facebook friends with her, and now she lives in, like, Mississippi of all places, in a little liberal college town bubble. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when I was in high school, uh, <clears throat> um, mainly my contact with other gay people and sort of my sense of validation of being gay, which, by the way, I don't identify as gay currently. Um, I'm, I think I'm bisexual. Um, that's what I initially came out as when I was um, in high school, but um, I sort of shifted, I got funneled into the, the gay male identity because it's sort of part of hegemonic culture, that it's, it's easy to identify with the gay male identity because it's so strongly established within um, sort of like what has become mainstream gay culture, <clears throat> which is this very um, like yuppie white gay man identity. Um, so when I was in high school, um, <clears throat> I went to this support group um, for LGBT kids and, well, and allies. Um, <clears throat> And um, it was, I was held at um, a health center um, in the this, this small, teeny suburb that I grew up in that was surrounded by larger suburbs. Um, and there were kids from a variety of surrounding high schools. Um, and we just talked about, like, basically it was, um, we had something called check-in and it's like name, age, what school you go to, and um, one good thing that happened to you that week and one bad thing that happened to you that week. Um, <clears throat> we would just go around the room and do check-in. Um, and that was a really important part for me of um, being in a validating environment with other gay people who were not going to judge me. I mean, sure, they were catty teenagers and some of them were really not very nice people. Um, but the important thing was that it was a safe space and not just a safe space in like the sense of, you know, not having harassment. It's safe space in the sense of the further sense of, you know, being like affirmatively validating. Um, <clears throat> so, um, that actually interesting thing, interesting fact, is in the past two years or so, at some point, um, the group actually got disbanded because all of the surrounding high schools, um, it's such a liberal area that all of the surrounding high schools have really good support structures within the schools for um, LGBT kids. So it's not necessary anymore. Um, and really, uh, actually, the, um, the basis for the, the group um, the way that they got their funding was um, HIV prevention, 
And I guess that, you know, in terms of their part that they played in that was determined to be no longer necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, my last year in high school, I actually went to a similar group at my high school. And this being a Jesuit high school where you're very don't ask, don't tell, um, it was not your standard gay straight alliance. It was it was a um, confidential LGBT support group um, because that was the only way that um, <clears throat> the only way that the school could um, have it without pissing off donors um, <clears throat> is sort of under the flag of well these kids are having problems and they need a supportive space for their mm-hmm. problems. Um, and I suppose somebody could interpret that as being, um, you know, saying, well, being gay is a problem. Um, I mean, it wasn't, but it was sort of like the cover under which it, it, it was able to sail. Um, so, uh, when I was in, uh, when I was in high school, and actually I, I remember, you know, I had crushes on girls when I was in grade school. Um, I, you know, I had a crush on a girl classmate, and um, <clears throat> I was also attracted to men. Um, and, you know, that was something that I suppressed. And I ended up having a girlfriend for two and a half years in high school. She was two years older than me, so it basically lasted for the two years that we overlapped um, at the school. And, um, you know, that was sort of an interesting experience um, because I, I don't know, just um, later being a gay person, um, you know, being in a relationship with someone who in many ways is a stereotypical angry lesbian. <laughs> um, it's just sort of interesting in retrospect. Um, and I mean, it sort of bears mentioning, it's not, I don't know how it ties into things, but um, for some time when I was in high school, I had an eating disorder. Um, <clears throat> So actually, before I joined the LGBT support group at my school, I was in a um, an eating disorder support group, um, and it really wasn't a body image thing. It was, um, it was really just I, uh, I had this really unsatisfying relationship with food. Um, that I had no appetite most of the time and I had stopped growing and I sort of wonder if having an eating disorder played a role in, you know, the fact that I'm a short person because what if my parents is like a foot taller than me? Um, anyway, so it's my childhood. When I went off to college, um, actually, more in high school. <clears throat> um, the, the sort of 
the validating liberal-ish, but at the same time conservative-ish church um, that I was at in grade school imploded when I was in um, about sixth grade um, <clears throat> in the sense that uh, there was this huge fissure between two different factions within the church because the more liberal faction basically had what has become much more popular these days, which is um, uh, a more modern psychology-based um, self-help type of Christianity um, versus um, the uh, more conservative faction was a little more hellfire and damnation. I don't know. I It was all, like, invisible to me until all of the more liberal faction, who most of them were patients of or friends of um, a prominent psychoanalyst at the church, um, abruptly left the church and founded their own church, um, which a year or two, a year or two later merged into um, a local megachurch as a branch location. Um, so I left that church and I started going to sort of by default the church of um, <clears throat> some of my classmates uh, at school. One of my classmates was the daughter of uh, the pastor at um, an Anglican church. And this got really weird because um, they're not Episcopal, they're Anglican. They were actually, and I didn't know about this for a while, they were actually um, a schismatic Anglican church that um, was part of a group of churches um, that had left the, um, the Episcopal Church of the United States um, over social justice issues, uh, that they, they didn't like that the Episcopal Church had uh, the Episcopal Church had <clears throat> uh, appointed a uh, an openly gay bishop, okay. and these churches were sponsored by dioceses in um, well archdioceses in uh, what's it called um, Rwanda, and I believe Singapore. So it was you know these far-flung places in the world that were much more socially conservative than the United States uh, that wanted to um, sort of reassert the social conservatism of their brand of Christianity. And many years later, like about two years ago, this really became a huge point of conflict in the Anglican Communion, which is the international sort of coordinating conference of um, the uh, Episcopal and Anglican Church, and the rest of the Anglican the rest of the Anglican Communion actually censured the Episcopal Church of the United States, Episcopal Church of America, um, I think is what its official name is, um, for um, making a lot of unilateral decisions about um, how they would approach gender and sexuality. And so this is very unfortunate, at the same time not surprising, um, because it is part of this somewhat hierarchical organization um, where there isn't, it doesn't have like a pope, but 
Um, it's a conference of equals where there's a national church organization in each country, and the other national churches didn't like the direction that the Episcopal Church was going. Um, <clears throat> so that was my time at that church was definitely it was definitely a don't ask don't tell sort of church um and but everyone was very 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 nice um and the youth leader um i later came to learn um <clears throat> was uh probably closeted something um because he had had he sort of had this mentorship role for my brother <clears throat> um because my brother came out as gay before i did and before i even knew about it he was out to my parents and he was out to the youth group leader and the youth group leader gave him all of this like christian masculinity literature and some sort of weird exodus international type ex-gay literature because of course this youth group leader was you know closeted he had apparently had some background of activity of some sort with men and um uh he he was trying to show my brother the same path um and my brother was like very involved with um sort of the religiosity of the church um that he he went through the confirmation process um and got baptized in the church um in high school whereas i had gotten baptized in the church that i went to in grade school because it was it was a sort of church where you can get baptized as you know a third grader mm -hmm. um if you so choose um so i went to all of the confirmation classes but i didn't actually go through with the confirmation um because it just wasn't speaking to me and so that's sort of my my relationship with christianity is that i have no real hard feelings towards christianity as a whole but in general i'm i have a really hard time connecting with church communities um and I don't have this sense that God speaks to me um, because sort of that voice of, you know, my sense of what the church is telling me, you know, that I ought to feel or do or be or whatever um, has, is very alien to me and it doesn't feel like that's God, you know, my my inner conscience is sort of out of sync with the church communities that I've belonged to. And it's interesting though, um, because when I was in college, I visited a uh, Quaker church and I visited um, a Unitarian Universalist church, which they're both are both, you know, so liberal to add to the point where they're not even conventionally Christian. And I still felt like it had this weird churchiness that made it really hard for me to connect to it. Um, but I'm not an angry atheist. I'm just a non-practicing 
secular person with a Christian background. Mm. And so I, it's very strange looking back at, you know, my background in Christianity and how much it has informed a lot of my views today. And You know, there are some things where I recognize that I have a certain bias, and at the same time, there are certain aspects of uh, my religious background that are still important to me. Um, and I think as I've gotten exposed to more religions, people of different religions, um, that's made it harder for me to identify with any particular religion. Um, because I really respect a lot of the um, conscientious positions that people of other religions take um you know even even it's even for example i don't know islam a lot of you know the muslim world is extremely repressive and at the same time i you know i really like muslim feminists um so it's it's really hard for me to see people who had, you know, an unfortunate time with their religious upbringing just shit on religion left and right. Because I don't think it's really possible to, um, well, I mean, people try, but it's not really possible to dismiss an entire religion based on the current cultural state of affairs. Mm -hmm. Because within each tradition, within each culture, there are people who care about social justice, um, who care about you know empathy and taking care of societally marginalized people. And in some societies, these people seem to be more marginalized themselves, um, though I'm really conscious of the fact that there's a degree of American cultural chauvinism where Americans and also other people from the West um, tend to have this sense that Western society has its shit together to a much greater extent than it actually does. Um, and so as someone who's gotten some of the brunt of the West's cultural dysfunction. Um, it really annoys me to see um, liberal people from the West shit on other countries um, for being more conservative when it's like, you know, get your own house in order. Um, so I guess... Yeah, my talking about my childhood sort of talk, turned into talking about my religious background, among other things. Um, I mean, I don't have a lot of resentment for my childhood. It's, you know, my, my parents, um, particularly my mother, uh, had a lot of psychological problems when I was growing up. And, you know, that got passed on just the way that happens when parents have psychological problems. Um, and I don't have any resentment towards them, you know, because my mother in particular has done a lot of work to process her own psychological problems and particularly, you know, trauma from her own childhood. 
Um, so she is very supportive of, you know, my process of coming to terms with, you know, my past trauma. And, um, I don't remember what I was going to say next. I was talking about my childhood. Yeah, and I don't really have resentment towards Christianity as a whole because there are so many aspects of what I got from my upbringing because I grew up in a sort of generally relentlessly positive Christian environment. Um, there are so many aspects of it that I see as being um, very good, positive, essentially humanistic things. Um, you know, caring and empathy and all of these wonderful things that make society better. Um, so it, I suppose, really hurts to see how uh, Christianity has gotten so negatively politicized in the United States um, in the past 15 years in particular. Um, though I know that it really started um, well back in the uh, early 90s. Um, I've, I've read about it. Um, thank goodness I was shielded from it. But, um, yeah, I, I, I very much identify with where I came from, even if I'm not in the same place as I was when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you have another question. Um, I sort of, in my summary, I'm mostly stopping with when I turned 18. Okay, sure, that makes sense. Um, I guess I had a follow-up question in terms of how were your parents reacting to you and your brother coming out as opposed to the church? Did they have different perspectives from the messages that you were receiving in church? Well, my parents sort of kind of always knew. And parents do. Um... <laughs> And my parents were also sort of part of this, you know, relentlessly positive sort of culture within Christianity. So it was a similar sort of don't ask, don't tell situation that, um, you know, being gay sort of was like having a terminal illness or something. And... Later on, you know, my parents talked about how they were utterly terrified that me or my brother would get AIDS and die. Um, and at the same time, my parents really didn't know anything or understand anything about what it means to be gay. Like, at one point, my father asked me if I was identifying as gay because my antidepressant that I was on had known side effect of reduced libido and I was like no <laughs> um and also uh my my brother really came out didn't come out my parents discovered gay porn on his computer five years before my brother came out to me. So this was 
something they knew and I was really in denial about myself. And so when I came out, they're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and by the time I came out, my parents had really processed their feelings about, um, you know, being gay. Um, and when I came out to them as transgender um, in the middle of 2015, and I initially came out as genderqueer, and I still sort of kind of identify as non-binary. Um, they're like, okay, you know, we love you, we support you. Um, so I'm, I guess, really thankful that my parents have done their work to process things on their own. Um, you know, sometimes they still can take their anxieties about things and put them on me or my brother. Um, but they're conscientious about trying not to do that. Um, so in general, I would say my parents have been incredibly supportive, uh, especially judging by the fact that you know, my mother in particular came from an even more conservative Christian background. You know, it was um, uh, actually a rather abusive family culture that she grew up in. Um, so perhaps, you know, you know how parents try not to make the same mistakes as their parents, but they do. Um, you know, my parents kept on trying to do the right thing and when they made mistakes, like, for example, they sent my brother to an abusive boot camp boarding school in the Dominican Republic for 20 months, and they didn't know how abusive it was be beforehand. They discovered this when my brother started becoming involved with other alumni in um, high school. But... They really, I think, put in effort to, like, atone by trying to remedy the negative consequences of their past mistakes, um, which to me is part of, like, atonement, of course, and, and reconciliation and, um, you know, penance. These are all very Christian concepts. I'm sure there are similar concepts in other religions. Um, at the same time, the idea of restorative justice um, as a process of reconciliation um, rather than punishment um, is a strong part of the modern social justice movements. So I'm really happy that those processes have unfolded in my family. Um, that I, I don't know. I, I'm talking about society and about my family, and it's really, I think, reflects that I have a lot of inner peace about um, my my background. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you had mentioned, you know, the support group in high school you were in, and other, you know, the LGBT-centered spaces you were in. Um, were you involved with any other communities or places that you felt belonging? Um. Um, well, I was sort of part of the, 
I was part of sort of an outcast geek community in my high school. <laughs> um, I was in the anime club uh, for all four years, and it was just as, you know, otaku, weeaboo stereotype as you would expect for teenagers watching anime. Uh, and I didn't really stay with that community. I didn't really stay connected to most of my friends from high school from that community. Um, and I didn't really stay into anime. I still sort of kind of like some anime, but it's nothing particularly special for me. Um, and that was also the community that my um, girlfriend was in. And another community in high school, which had a lot of overlap, was the Fringe Film Society. It was another club at my high school <clears throat> um, that basically we watched B-movies and cult classics. And uh, some of the people from that group um, later became involved with a um, the a Star Trek club at the Unitarian Universalist Church uh, in Evanston, which is a couple towns over from my high school. So even while I didn't see them on a regular basis, um, I still saw some of the same people from high school when I would go to these Star Trek club events, um, particularly their marathons, usually once or twice a year when I was visiting Chicago from uh, where I went to college. So, I mean, that was a community that I enjoyed being a part of, but didn't really connect with a lot of people on a long-term basis. And finally, the, the, uh, the, the other community that, I, that was probably the most prominent community for me um, in a lot of ways was the youth group at church. And... Again, I really haven't stayed in touch with most of the people from that. I'm Facebook friends with the youth group leader and his wife, and I'm Facebook friends with some of the parents and more the parents than the the than the people my age, because the parents are my parents' friends, and my parents stay in touch with them, and my parents don't stay in touch with the people my age, so in large part. It was an extension of, I mean, the the way that I've stayed in that church community is an extension of my my mother's relationship with that church, which she continued going to until very recently, and she left after um, the uh, um, censure that the Anglican Communion um, issued on the um, Episcopal Church in the United States because um, my brother in particular was not happy with her being part of a church that had made it its official position to oppose gay rights. Um, so she switched to a different church. She's now, um, she's now Lutheran, well, goes to a Lutheran church and I don't remember the different types of Lutherans, but she goes to the cool liberal Lutheran type church, not the Missouri Synod 
which is crazy conservative. Um, and I think Lutheranism um, <clears throat> has much less of even less even less of a top-down power structure um, than uh, than the uh, Episcopal Church because well, I mean that there can be two different synods that are in the same country and have been for a very long time and just that's the way it is. Uh, it's not out of the ordinary, um, which I mean really allows the church that she goes to now to be very concerned with social justice, which is nice. Um, so yeah, those were the three communities that I really was, I would say I identified with, that I was a part of when I was in high school. And at the same time, I didn't really feel strongly enough in with my identification with those communities to really continue with them after I moved away. Um, and for the most part, individual people um, from those communities are not a part of my life anymore. I mean, I'm friends with people on Facebook, some people, but I really don't keep in touch with them. Yeah. So I have one more question about this time period and then we can move on to college. It's okay. also It also encompasses college, but you know, for people who were coming of age in the 90s and early 2000s, we had the internet. And I was wondering if you could speak a little to the role that that had in your, um, you know, in your social life and your development. Well, I, I was very much of the MySpace generation. Um, And I don't know. MySpace had more of an expressive quality than Facebook. Um, It was more of you made a decision to dig up these memes and then post them um, in a prominent and fixed place in your profile. And so I mean, Facebook when MySpace was a place where you could be somewhat expressive. Um, <clears throat> I was also part of um, an online community called DeviantArt, which I really engaged with it from the perspective of um, photography and um, architectural design, um, because that was my passion. I went to architecture school. Um, and I, for se- for several years, I really engaged with um, a lot of people in, you know, just a group of people that I followed on DeviantArt. And I would try to comment on most of the things that they posted. And that was nice. Um, at the same time, you know, there wasn't a lot of reciprocation. Um, so that I think wasn't really rewarding in the long run. Um, <clears throat> and another online community that I became involved with 
was Second Life. <laughs> and mainly what I did there is I would build things, again, architecture. And I had a neighbor um, in Second Life who ran an arts community in Second Life. And so we sort of built up compatible quasi-urban stuff um, adjacent to each other. Um, and I eventually uh, connected with that guy outside of Second Life, and now we're friends on Facebook. And he's someone that I interact with semi-frequently on Facebook. Um, so it's interesting that I got the most out of that. And um, even now, nowadays, the online community that I interact with the most is probably Twitch. Um, I like games. I design games. I don't really play a lot of games because my mental, with my mental health, my um, anxiety makes it so that I get very, very agitated while playing games. And this is something that sort of ebbs and flows and sometimes more sometimes I'm really more able to play games and sometimes I'm not um, hopefully I'll get more towards being able to play games soon but anyway I like watching people play games and sort of chatting with them um, making jokes about things in the game stuff like that and <coughs> so the way Twitch works is there's a streaming video usually with a webcam of a person playing game, making commentary. And then there's um, a chat room alongside the video that the streamer can watch and interact with. So usually a streamer will read aloud a thing from, uh, from chat and then reply to it. Um, and there are several streamers that I've watched I've watched quite a lot over the past um, year or so um, to the extent that I'm really a known person to them and again I surprisingly connected with some of these people um, usually not the streamers themselves because they're relatively public figures so they're very concerned about their privacy but other people from the chat um, other chat regulars I've connected with um, on Facebook, and I've never met them in person, but I interact with them semi-frequently on Facebook. Um, some of them are, I mean, in general, I think Twitch people are more active on Twitch than they are on Facebook, but it's interesting that, like, for example, <coughs> I am somewhat open about being trans on um, Twitch, and whenever I talk about it, um, a lot of the time I get some shithead um, being sexist, and I usually am open about, you know, I'm very assertive about when someone is being sexist. I call them out. And um, when I've come out as trans on face on, on Twitch, and um, other times when I've, um, you know, been, you know, had this conflict with people in chat or even a streamer. Um, people have sent me private messages on Twitch thanking me 
for being a visible trans person because I'm making them feel safer. You know, people who are themselves trans, who are in these chats that are generally safe spaces, but not completely, because most streamers are like 19 or 20 years old and are not very well informed on issues and they avoid sensitive topics um, because they don't want flame wars in their chat. So, <clears throat> I mean, that has the tendency of causing people to suppress aspects of their identity. In particular, um, a lot of women um, on Twitch use gender-neutral um, usernames to avoid getting harassed and you know whenever I you know when I come out as um, trans on Twitch when I ever when I talk about it um, like invariably some shithead says something mm -hmm. and so this policy of not rocking the boat of trying to have harmony tends to cause people to suppress what might be considered controversial aspects of their identity. Um, so it becomes a very, like, cishet, male, white, 19, 20, 19 or 20 year old normative environment. Um, but I really like testing the waters in, in certain streams to see if they're a safe place to be out as trans. And the places that are generally safe to be out as trans are the places that I frequent the most. Mm -hmm. And I've also found that I, also especially since transitioning, I've really connected with, uh, in particular, um, uh, women streamers, because they're just so much more chill. And they're not like low-key sexist and not intending to be sexist but still sexist and defensive about it they're like they get it they get it that when you're a woman on the internet people are assholes to you so I mean that's what I found that I, I feel safest most often in um, streams in chat rooms that are um, the streams with women streamers um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that, you know, I've, I've found Twitch to be much more rewarding than I found the previous online communities I've been a part of. And, you know, that's not something from my childhood or, or high school. That's really like my life right now. Yeah. Um, <coughs> I had a lot of issues like when I, I went back to well after I graduated from college and even at college I was um when I was at college I didn't have a lot of friends um when I graduated from college I got married and became very socially isolated um and then I went to grad school and um I started at DePaul University in Chicago as an online student and then I moved to New York and I started at NYU and I had a lot of problems at NYU that I can get into later, but, um, you know, while it was very stimulating to be around a lot of people, 
um, I just got exhausted um, from having to deal with low-level microaggressions, um, particularly in you know this cishet or early mid twenty something white male community, and people who were generally pretty nice people. It was still like there was this block, and. So after I left NYU, um, I left halfway through the degree program, and I went back to DePaul. So that's what I'm doing right now. <coughs> after I left NYU, um, I was just really exhausted of community. And I mean, I tried to connect with um, a local video game gallery community called Baby Castles. and they were having some serious drama at that time and I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and I just got shit on. Um, again, this it really had a lot to do with my mental health problems at the time and so I just, that happened in late 2015 so for most of 2016 I was just sick of dealing with in-person communities because the thing with in-person communities is that you sort of have to put up with people and online you can just block people um, like on Twitch you can block individual users and they just poof you don't see them in chat they're invisible and that's really nice because they can watch the stream they can interact with the streamer they can interact with the other people in the chat and you just don't have to deal with them. Um, and I, you know, particularly since transitioning, um, it's gotten to the point where I semi-regularly block people on both Facebook and Twitch. Um, and on Facebook, I mean, I found that I, since transitioning on Facebook, which for me was changing my name and my profile picture, I've largely stopped interacting with strangers because, again, people like, you know, when you're out as a woman on the internet, people treat you like shit. Um, so I think that's really my relationship with online communities as a trans person. Yeah. Um, do you feel comfortable talking about college and afterwards? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, <clears throat> sure. Well... Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I was studying architecture, and it was a very intense program. Uh, where were you? Sorry. I was... Oh, sorry. When I went to college, I sort of wanted to get away from everything. And so I got a scholarship at University of Southern California in Los Angeles, and I moved there, and I lived in the city, which I was really happy about because I really hated living in the suburbs because of the social isolation. Again, social isolation, I think, is more of an issue, even more of an issue if you are a marginalized person, um, <clears throat> which is why you know, the like gay communities are always in cities, because it's just easier for people to come together in cities. Um, <clears throat> so I moved to Los Angeles, and I was in architecture school for five years. And when I was in architecture school, I spent, it's a very intense program, so I spent most of my time working on homework. Um, 
and I was quite a bit of a workaholic and I I used it as a way of not having to deal with other people um, and I didn't I didn't really develop a lot of friendships as an undergraduate um, especially with classmates the people I became friends with were people that I randomly met in weird situations um, like my two of my old roommates um, one of them um, they're both women one of them I met at a bus stop um, at, when some drunk homeless person was talking about the boots I was wearing and then she and I both got on the bus together and started talking with that being the conversation starter and then um, a subsequent roommate um, <clears throat> and both of these people I'm still in touch with um, a subsequent roommate I met while I was um, sketching I was sitting in front of a bicycle sketching the bicycle wheel for a class and she walked up to me and was like asking me what I was doing and so we started chatting and this is another person that I ended up living with her for six months and um, I'm still in touch with her. So it's really people that I meet in these really strange circumstances um, that I ended up connecting with. But someone else I met on the bus when I was in high school um, was this gay guy. And he was friendly. And I ended up having several lunch dates with him. And he was really charming, and I had a crush on him. And... And this is the difficult thing. <clears throat> Actually, I should step back a bit. Um, when I was a sophomore and junior um, in college, I was very lonely and very depressed. And so I would have casual anonymous sex with people and this was extremely unrewarding because um, what I really wanted was, you know, a fulfilling relationship with someone and um, I think at that time I was much more socially, socially awkward than I am now and I so I, I, I again turning to you know these online gay spaces to find people to hook up with and while some people seem to be perfectly fine with what is now grinder culture, um, it was really toxic for me. Um, I ended up having really low self-esteem um, <clears throat> that I did not think I was attractive, I did not think I was worthwhile. So it ended up happening with this guy. <coughs> um, he sort of introduced me to his circle of friends and I went to um, his ex-boyfriend who was still like his best friend don't and I don't know what the story is with that um, had um, hosted what was the friend's birthday or this guy's birthday party um, at his apartment and um, so went to the went to the apartment, had drinks, met people, chatted with people, and then went, went downstairs to the club. And um, that was just happened to be around the corner. 
and then um, partied a whole bunch. I got really shit-faced, ended up making out with somebody, and then I ended up going back upstairs with some of the other people, and um, a <coughs> whole bunch of us, probably a dozen people, dozen gay guys, um, all crashed in the um, the apartment. Um, like there, you know, the the guy had a fold out, um, had a sort of futon type sofa, and then another like older, just long sofa. And there were people like on both sofas, and I ended up um, sleeping in the bed, um, on the edge of the bed, next to the guy that I had the crush on and his ex, and. I, you know, was trying to sleep, and what happened was the ex-boyfriend um, put his hand inside my underwear and um, penetrated me, and I didn't know what to do, um, so I just froze. And the next morning, um, <clears throat> the next morning, I, when I, I woke up, everyone was gone except for the guy who lived there. And I don't remember how exactly it happened, but, you know, he started making out with me and stuff. And we fooled around but did not have penetrative sex and I felt terrible um you know because like you know I I hooked up with this person um and I felt like it had ruined my chances of having a you know relationship with the guy that I had a crush on um incidentally like two days later I went to Long Beach Pride and met my husband, um, who I'm still mar who I'm married to. I'm separated from at the moment, but I'm still married to, and I still love him, but we're separated. Um, my husband, I met him on the dance floor, and I hooked up with him too. Um, and I was just like, like, I was you know, sort of what the fuck moment, like, what am I doing? Um, <coughs> the next weekend, the guy that I had the crush on had another birthday party. And this one was in West Hollywood as opposed to downtown Los Angeles, because he sort of had two groups of friends. Um, so I went to the one in West Hollywood, because um, that, that was near where he lived. And this was at um, <coughs> a sort of club restaurant place that um, had a drag review, and so we watched the drag review, had something to eat, and I was, like, really freaking out. So I got shit-faced again. Um, I remember I was really upset, and so I ordered a Long Island iced tea. And, like, I don't... Like, I got really, really drunk. And I needed to go home at the end, and um, the guy I had a crush on offered to... Um, with his roommates, they had driven there. He offered to drop me off at the train station, which was 
because of the strange arrangement of Los Angeles public transportation was like several miles away and you know I would need to drive there he could drop me off and then I could take the train home um the subway and <coughs> so I got in the car with them and um when we were in the car he's like well actually I'm gonna bring you home with me and I was like I don't want to go home with you and I actually was like I don't want to go home with you I don't want to hook up with you um, because you know I think that this would ruin our friendship and they brought me home with him and I was so shit-faced that I couldn't do anything to resist and I don't remember what happened that night um, and the next morning you know woke up in his bed and we fooled around and then he drove me to school and dropped me off because uh, I was I was gonna run some like run some errands in the school area even though it was the weekend and he was very nice about like very sweet about it but after that he started making these excuses for why he couldn't see me and you know I, I immediately went out of town after that and I was out of town for three weeks when I came back I had been planning to get together with him for um, West Hollywood Pride because West Hollywood Pride is on Stonewall Sunday Long Beach Pride is in May in the middle of May um, presumably because they don't want to conflict with West Hollywood Pride um, <coughs> uh, so I went there and I didn't have um, I'm, I had lost my phone my phone had gotten stolen by a taxi driver left it in a taxi and then the taxi was like whoa you didn't leave it in the taxi um, and so I used a payphone and I called him like once every hour or something over the course of the day and being like, hi, can we meet up? I'm going to try calling you again in an hour. And I did this for the entire day and he didn't pick up once. Um, later he said, oh, I didn't have my phone on me. Excuses, excuses. Um... And then another time I asked him if he wanted to get together and this is several months, like a month or two later, and he's like, I'm busy. And then he posted on Facebook that he was going to a club and had an open invitation for people to join him. And I texted him about this to confront him about this and like, your Facebook's talking to me. I'm like, no, no, this showed up in my newsfeed. So my attitude um, at the time and I had started going out with my husband because you know he was very nice to me um, my husband uh, and I was not I started seeing him but I wasn't like his boyfriend um, <clears throat> at the time you know I felt like that this guy I had had a crush on previously had like chewed me up and spit me out which is exactly what I felt like 
you know, exactly what I had worried about would happen. And, you know, my understanding of that incident, the two incidents actually, changed over time. And I'll get to that. Um, <clears throat> so I started going out with my husband who had a, a lot of issues of his own and he was very, very needy um, and very controlling. Um, and, you know, I ended up, you know, suppressing a lot of these um, issues that I was having because I became so focused on my husband. And I, I studied abroad um, uh, over a summer um, between my fourth and fifth years. And when I came back, um, I, I remember going to a gay bar with my husband who went up to San Francisco for a weekend. And I just... I started freaking out. I... I was freaking out and so I went and I took a bar stool and put it in the corner of the room and then sat on top of the bar stool, curled up in a ball, sobbing. And I was like, what the fuck is happening to me? Um, and over the next six months I proceeded to have a massive psychological breakdown. and. You know, I I was borderline suicidal. I did not want to kill myself, but I had lots of suicidal ideations and it was terrifying. And I felt like I was gonna fail out of college in my last semester. Fortunately, all of my professors were teaching students who's, who had, who for whom it was their last semester and they're like, we're just going to give you an easy time. So while I was really unhappy with my work output, um, you know, I got good grades. Um, and because I had been just so out of it, you know, actually for the entire time I was an undergraduate, I had not ever been able to get a job or internship over the summers. Um, and I had never actually applied for an architecture internship, um, and I applied for other types of internships. And so I, when I graduated from college, I just became this recluse in my apartment. Um, I you know, felt like shit about my, my portfolio, and so I just worked on my portfolio for six months and didn't apply for jobs, and, um, and then I got married, and the thing was that I, you know, I don't know if I was really ready to get married, <clears throat> but, um, my husband, who, you know, I loved and cared about, um, a great deal, um, you know, he had come here on um, a marriage visa with the previous spouse, 
and gotten divorced and his he had lost his visa lost his um you know his permission to be here and so he was sort of in this limbo um in terms of like he was still paying taxes he had a social security number um all of that and yet you know he didn't have a legal status and at that time um <clears throat> gay marriage was was um had been illegalized but at the same time kind of overturned in California what the California um Supreme Court determined was that having any functional difference between gay marriage and an equivalent for no but between same sex uh, opposite sex marriage and an equivalent for same sex marriage um was unconstitutional under the California state constitution so for all intents and purposes you could be gay married and have the same rights however you could not get gay married in California so we flew to New York and eloped um and you, we brought our New York marriage back and I moved in with my husband and you know it was not a healthy relationship and I had started seeing a therapist um my last semester in college and as I was working with this therapist I you know came to the realization that you know what had really precipitated this psychological collapse was what had happened to me with that guy that um both he and his um ex-boyfriend had sexually assaulted me um and i just held down to that by myself for quite some time you know i got my life together enough that i finished i got my portfolio to a point where i was happy with it i sent out dozens of job applications this was two three years after i graduated and then i couldn't get a job i had several interviews and never got the job and so i decided to go to graduate school um because you know a big part of what i had been dissatisfied with as an undergraduate was the lack of um a sort of um computer design um sort of basis uh for my education so i decided to go to school for video game design and that was when i started on started at DePaul and i got into NYU and um i moved and i got into NYU and um right before i got into NYU um <clears throat> this was a year after uh the defense of marriage act had been overturned as well as prop 8 and so my husband was able to get a green card which meant that he could get a different job because he had the documentation that allowed him to get a different job um instead of being stuck with the job that he had when he had his old visa um so we moved to New York and uh I started at NYU and my husband started at CUNY um and things got really bad um my husband had been very jealous of my time and attention when we had lived in California <clears throat> but I had been sort of reclusive um so 
<clears throat> there wasn't a lot of competition. Um, whereas once I that went back to school, I was, you know, leaving for school at nine in the morning and coming back at nine at night or later. And he hated this. And I developed a crush on one of my classmates and I was like, I don't want to pursue this, but it makes me feel like shit. And I told my husband about this. And in a crucial mistake, I also asked him what he might think of an open relationship. And I was like, I'm not going to do anything that you're not okay with. And basically my life was very, I would say, not complete hell, but really, really stressful. And I was miserable when I was at NYU. And at the same time as, um, you know, all this shit going on with my husband, um, this classmate that I had a crush on was behaving erratically and being this sort of weird passive-aggressive jerk to me. And I was just, like, freaking out. I was terrified of this classmate. I was also sort of terrified of my husband. And it was like, my husband never physically abused me, but he was emotionally abusive to the extent that I began to develop um, a lot of the um, sort of symptoms of you know, battered person syndrome. And I felt like I was losing my grip on reality. That, you know, I... I just had to, you know, keep on, you know, stating and telling people, you know, this is happening to me. I'm not crazy. And at the same time, I felt like I was crazy. And, you know, my grades declined while I was at um, NYU, and I had a B minus average for two semesters in a row, which you're not supposed to do. So I had to leave NYU. And I can go back at some point, but I, when I had to leave NYU because of my grade issues, you know, at least temporarily leave, my initial response was like, this is such a relief. I'm so glad I have an excuse to leave this place where I am constantly afraid and I'm miserable and I hate it here. And I, at the same time, I really liked the material that I was studying. I really liked the work that I was doing. I just felt like I was so I was so stressed out, um, <clears throat> and my anxiety was so bad that I couldn't concentrate on my work. And I would just sit there and do nothing, like waste time for hours in the evening at my at um, the, the apartment and. You know, it was, it was exacerbated by the fact that certain people in the department that, you know, members of the faculty, you know, I, faculty and staff who I tried to reach out to um, for help, you know, they're like, well, this is your fault because you're attracted to this guy and 
they it was like I was very careful not to sexually harass this classmate. At the same time, I was, like, terrified of him. And I tried to explain this. And um, one of the people that I went to was like, you need to stop talking to him. And I was like, but I see him, like, every single day in all of my classes. How do I do this? And I was just like this makes me feel like, you know, a second-class citizen, that I have to be silent, and I can't talk about the, the difficulties that I'm having, because if I were to, if I, when I would tell this, this guy that I had a crush on that I'm stressed out, and that it's not his fault, he'd be like, <gasps> and it just, and you're not really literally like that, but He was, like, at one point, he's like, I was like, I told him, I feel like I'm following you around like a puppy. So I would ask to ask him if I could sit next to him in class. I was like, I don't know why I'm doing this, and I, I hate it. And he's like, yeah, I don't get why you're following me around like a puppy. It's like, he's like, basically, I came to the conclusion that this guy was gaslighting me. Um, that he was just treating me like I was crazy. And, you know, that was what I told, you know, the professor that I went to for help. And <clears throat> the professor, that was the professor, was like, you need to, you, you, you can't talk to this classmate anymore. Um, and, you know, more recently I come to realize that it was the same you know, PTSD symptoms, same PTSD that had, I had, that had cropped up earlier, um, that I was experiencing much more intensely. And it really wasn't something to do with the classmate. I was just freaking out because of the issues I was having with my husband and also because of the issues from my past, you know, being sexually assaulted and just some of the emotional trauma from my childhood that had caused me to have a difficult time, you know, processing negative emotions um, because I had always been afraid to express them. And so basically this classmate was treating me like I was crazy because I was freaking out. And, you know, the members of the faculty that I, faculty and staff that I went to for help treated me like I was crazy because I was freaking out. And I was seeing a university psychiatrist and the university psychiatrist, when I got, when I had to, when I had to leave NYU, they were like, wait, what? I didn't know this was happening. And it was like, they just was so out of touch. Um, fortunately, I had an outside therapist, um, that was covered by NYU Insurance because NYU has very limited resources inside the university for um, counseling. And the outside therapist was supportive, but I had had 10 sessions of um, couples counseling with an NYU therapist and they never like addressed the possibility that it could be an abusive relationship. And so I really feel like 
NYU failed me and dropped the ball by, you know, not recognizing the problems that I was having. And when I reached out for help, telling me that it was my fault. And <clears throat> in my opinion, a big part of this is because I had not transitioned yet at that point. Um, but the university was gendering me as male and reading into my experience with a societal bias that, uh, you know, a second wave feminist bias that, you know, men are responsible for these problems and how could I have these problems if I'm a man? And, you know, that pushback that I got was a big part of what caused me to decide to come out as non-binary because I'm like, you know, your expectations of me because you see me as a man just don't fit with who I am and who I want to be. And, you know, I reject that. And so I have a bit of a radical attitude towards gender in that sense that you know, I do think that a lot of what constitutes gender in our society is really oppressive. Um, I mean, the medically transitioning um, that happens later on, it just sort of was like a natural extension of, you know, exploring my femininity and it felt, felt right. You know, wearing dresses and you know, all of that and being feminine and being pretty and being sexy. And I just, I just, when I started on hormone therapy, I, you know, I felt more myself, like the feeling of being on estrogen, I felt more myself than the feeling of having testosterone. And I, I completely disconnected from the NYU community not long after I um, left because I, the last time that I, I mean, the, the, one of the last times that I visited NYU, I saw this classmate, I had a panic attack and I tried to bring this up as an issue with a um, member of faculty, and they're like, well, you should just stop coming to events. And I pushed this. I actually pursued a complaint against this, this faculty member um, with uh, the university's department of Office of Equal Opportunity is what I think they call it. And lo and behold, they did the exact same thing, which was, you know, they listened to my story and they're like, oh, you know, reassuring. And then they turned around and said, this is all your fault. And so I got banned from coming to, going to any events or entering that building on campus because I filed a complaint. Anyway, so, that's why I was nervous about when I saw that this was an NYU building when I was coming in today and I was like, I have to show this guy my ID and I wonder if he's going to run it in the computer and like, there'll be shit on me or something. 
Fortunately, that didn't happen. Um, fortunately, it appears that it's only really an issue for me to get into the one building that I really don't want to go to, which is where my old department was. And... Um, you know, that happened around the same time that, you know, I... I confronted someone at Baby Castles about talking about how people with mental illness should be excluded from their community. And I was like, this is not okay. And I got banned from Baby Castles for the same reason. And I, you know, that was totally retaliation for standing up to myself because they didn't have, it's, it's, it's one of the things that can be very toxic with baby castles about a lot of communities that are non-hierarchical is that there's no one to turn to if you have a problem and even hierarchical communities you know like NYU you know I turned to people who I thought would be responsible for helping me and they just blamed me for my problems and retaliated against me for reaching out to them and so that's why I've been a recluse for the past two years. And I've been, you know, getting most of my social life from Facebook and Twitch. And a big part of that is that on Facebook in particular, I, you know, really connect with um, my, you know, queer and trans friends. And so I found this sort of supportive community in the sense of a very small circle of friends that I regularly interact with um, who are queer and trans and they get it. <laughs> um, you know, they understand the shit that I've, you know, gone through or they appreciate it. They respect it because they've been through similar shit. And, you know, because I've been through so much shit, I it's easier for me to have, for me to empathize with, you know, what a lot of other queer and trans people are going through. This is like, even people who are really abusive, I can empathize with. Like, you know, my husband was emotionally abusive and, you know, this, it, it was not a healthy relationship for him either and this is why we separated. Um, but we still love each other. It's just that when we get together, it just is like really toxic. Um, like the last time I saw him, you know, he visited me, he stayed at my house for one night. And I was like, you know, he initially wanted to have sex with me and I was like, no. And he was like trying to kiss me and I just sort of froze and I was freaking out. And I was like, you know, if you're going to stay with me, I need to be able to trust you that you're not going to pressure me to have sex. And a big part of what happened in the past, like, two, three months <clears throat> is I came to a further realization because I, I had sort of started being acquaintances with this guy that I sort of kind of had a crush on. He was nice, and I didn't push it with him. Um, 
But I met up with him after not talking with him for a while, and I went to a performance that he was at, and then I went to with a bar, a bar with him and his friends, and I had already told him that I did not want to have sex with him, and you know, at the same time I said, you know, I would, I would really like it if you know, if you could just put your arm around me so I could feel safe, and. When it was, and he was like, well, I'm not comfortable with that. And at the bar, he was really, like, physically affectionate in the way that people who are drinking often are. Um, put his arm around me, and it was held in his hand, and it was really nice. And then he started, like, dirty dancing with some other woman, and I was like, what the fuck is going on? And I just felt like shit, like this guy is just using me and the next day you know that 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 even when I went home and the next the next day I started having like crazy crazy flashbacks to what had happened with the friends who had you know abducted me when I was drinking with him at his birthday party and you know I told this guy about it and I came to the realization around that time because I was reading about, um, you know, definitions of what constitutes different types of um, sexual assaults, and I realized that when that guy's ex-boyfriend who was lying next to me in bed, um, you know, penetrated me without my permission, you know, he had raped me, and. this was like simultaneously really upsetting and a very empowering realization that I was a rape survivor and just all of this PTSD started pouring out um, around the beginning of December and it kept on going through the middle of January and a lot of it was based around you know, the fact that I, I was not spending Christmas with my husband and he was going to move to a different state and then he he moved to you know he moved to a different state right before New Year's and I just completely broke down um you know for the first time ever I was actually wanting to kill myself and it was just terrifying um for the first couple weeks of January and you know at the same time this friend who I had freaked out about did the same sort of like similar thing to the guy at NYU which is he just locked up and was like what 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 and he didn't know what to do and he was really uncomfortable and he's like he pushed me away because he was freaking out that I was freaking out so I don't know I think a, a lot of and I I finally got a new therapist a lot of the sort of difficulties that I've gone through have caused me to have this strange inner peace even when I'm really stressed out and when there's all of this shit happening and 
Um, I don't know where I'm leading with this. You just, I'm just giving you my life story and that's my life story up to this point, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you can ask any other questions you want. Sure. I mean that, yeah, that's an incredible life history. <laughs> it's great that you have a narrative, you know? Um, I guess one thing, you know, if there's anything else you want to add, go for it. Um, anything that you're thinking of? Oh, something that I had remembered that I had forgotten. Um, it was a sort of weird experience um, when I was a child. Is that I was a Boy Scout, and I stopped going to the Boy Scouts, stopped being involved with them. When my brother came back from the boarding school. And this was because my parents knew that he was gay and they were suspecting that I was gay. And I didn't understand this at the time. I didn't know why we had stopped doing Boy Scouts. Um, But my parents pulled me out of Boy Scouts because at that time, the Boy Scouts was a strongly anti-gay organization. Um, And I talked to my dad like more recently, like in the past year, and he's like, I don't remember this. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, this is what happened. And it, it was just... The Boy Scouts was, I guess, another community that I engaged with. Even though, in a lot of ways, it was really toxic in the way that you would expect teenage boys to be really toxic. And parents being... Also kind of toxic, some of them. Um, you know, particularly because it was a very affluent community where the Boy Scouts was located. We lived in the small suburb next to the very affluent community, and it was much more down-to-earth where we lived. Um, and so my my parents in particular just, like, hated... My dad hated the a lot of the other... the parents for just... They, they were, like, lawyers and bankers, and they were really, really concerned about showing off how wealthy they were. And this was a huge turnoff for both of my parents that, you know, they got the house that I grew up in was, they paid for with inheritance and it was in a substantially more affluent area than either of them had ever lived in before. And so, I mean, that was part of the reason why I was in a cultural bubble with church is because they just felt so alienated from, you know, the local community being so superficial and concerned with wealth. Um, But with the Boy Scouts, uh, you know, my father was an Eagle Scout and my father like continues to this day to collect Boy Scout patches. It's one of his big hobbies. Um, And so I feel like that was a connection that I missed out with. Um, not being able to work on being an Eagle Scout. Um, And I felt like I could have within a year or two. Um, And I know that my brother hated all of the outdoorsiness, but I really enjoyed it. And I don't know, I still feel like a lot of that culture of the outdoorsiness and the crafts and, you know, that sense of 
that type of thing is just I have been very disconnected with it um, since uh, since then. So that's for probably more than half. No, not more than half of my life. About half of my life, and so I do have a sense of loss, and I also have a sense of loss with you know leaving the church. Um, that you know these were communities that I belonged to. These were cultures that were my own, and I had to leave because I didn't fit in. I had to leave because you know the church or the um, Boy Scouts were anti-gay. I also felt like I had to leave because especially with the church you know I just didn't believe in the actual like theology of the religion. Um, so there was this sense of you know my teenage years and going to college that I lost a lot of who I was growing up. And I think that might be part of why I became so isolated and depressed when I was in college. And, you know, part of why I sort of started on this cycle of self-destructive behavior, um, which sort of led to, you know, my being raped. And at the same time, I don't really have hard feelings about it. I mean, the one thing that's really still too close for me <clears throat> is my experience at NYU. Like, I could hypothetically go back. I'm just not ready to because I don't feel like I have the strength to take care of myself in an environment where everyone has a strong bias against me because I'm having these problems and I'm not a cishet white male. And, you know, I've been having some difficulty with my class coursework at um, DePaul, and one of my professors has a little bit of a toxic attitude towards, you know, life problems and health problems interfering with coursework. He's sort of like, well, if you're having these problems, you should drop out. I'm like, really, really, really? I should have him, I should drop out if I'm having these problems? Um, so, at the same time, you know, I'm a half-time student, and I just don't have to deal with people, and you know, leaving NYU and also separating from my husband, I've really had a lot more space to become more comfortable with myself. So in the past six months or so, it's just been this huge like awakening process. It's been very painful at times, but I feel like, you know, things have, have been and are continuing to get a lot better in my life.
And I mean, I've always had that sense because I've always been this cynical optimist. Um, but I just feel surprisingly good right now. Um, and I guess that's where I find myself right now. So. All right. Do you have any other questions? Um, you know, that does seem like a really good ending place. But, you know, <laughs> um, unless, you know, you're up for one more question. It's up to you. you can ask me whatever you would like to ask okay. me. Um, if you have like a particular type of question that, you know, you are interested in for the purpose of this sort of oral history project, I'd be happy to weigh in on any, anything you want to ask me. Um, what time is it? Let's see. Um, it's 6.40. Okay. One more question. <laughs> One more question. Okay. Um, I'm interested in the language you've used throughout the interview. You know, you've a lot, used a lot of social justice keywords, you know, microaggressions, transformative justice, identifying with survivorhood, and judging from your academic background, um, it doesn't seem like you would have come across those vocabulary terms. So I'm wondering how you kind of had your social justice awakening. And that's my final, you know. Um, well, I was, I, I went through a period of being very, like, Marxist in college as an undergraduate, but I became really cynical about the world um, as, you know, I saw that I couldn't get a job and, you know, um, those things, <laughs> uh, and my life was falling apart. And so I was like, well, yes, things are shitty, but there's nothing I can do about it. Um, <clears throat> and when I was at NYU, you know, that was right after, um, what's it called? What's his name? Um, that teenager got killed by the police in Missouri. I forget what his name is. Mike Brown in, I forget what the name of the town is. In Anyway, yes, that happened. And I was initially like, well, yeah, this, this happens. The world is a terrible place. Um, the United States is manifestly a horrible place for um, African Americans, even if it's better in a lot of ways than any other alternative. It's, you know, we live in a country with a lot of injustice at the same time like what am I going to do about it it's just like I, I, I so I was very detached and there were some very woke people at NYU and <laughs> as I was experiencing a lot of this um, sexism that was like pretty low level, but persistent. Um, you know, I started reading about things and, you know, also on paper, um, the program at NYU is very pro-social justice. Um, so the, um, you know, my studies and my projects put me in contact with a lot of materials that I dug deeper and I found them really empowering. Um, I remember coming across the Geek Feminism Wiki 
and it's like feminism but within the context of you know geek society geek culture which is that's like you know the gamers and you know people who go to comic conventions and things like that and you know I came across all of these resources talking about how actually another thing that happened that I forgot to mention was Gamergate and a lot of people in the program were really upset about Gamergate and so I heard a lot about what people were people's responses to Gamergate and that was another thing that put me in touch with a lot of resources about understanding and pushing back against the toxicity of the community that I found myself in and one of the difficulties with NYU is that the community was incredibly self-righteous they're like we are we are very woke here I'm like no no you're not and they're like how dare you so yeah I would say that it came down to probably the biggest factor was Gamergate and the discussions that people in video game design school had about it and my growing realization that you know a lot of these toxic elements of culture still existed even in the ostensibly progressive environment that I was in um which I think is a big part of what you know empowered me you know recognizing you know these types of you know structural abuse and oppression um, empowered me to embrace, you know, empowered me to dig down and see, you know, who am I outside of what this culture wants me to be? And so that was, you know, that social justice awakening is a big part of what empowered me to transition and, you know, come out as a as first as a genderqueer person and then as a woman. Um, you know, reading, you know, becoming very in tune with and connected with the feminist narratives in particular, you know, I can identify with so many of them. And it's not that I'm like anti-man. It's just that in particular, I'm like, I'm not a second wave feminist. I'm not an oppositional feminist. I'm, you know, as a transgender person who's somewhat non-binary, I really identify with the sort of multifaceted, intersectional type of feminism that, that is third-way feminism, that patriarchy hurts men just as much as it hurts women. Um, it's just, connecting to it has been a really empowering experience. Um, very validating experience. And so that's how I woke. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that because you're involved with a transgender oral history project that you're probably very woke as well. And so you know all all of the jargon. Yes. <laughs> all of the jargon. <laughs> so much. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, so much. Yeah. It's difficult on the internet when you come across people who are 19 and have not read all of this stuff. And they're like, what do these words mean? You are attacking me. I'm like, no, I'm not. You just don't understand what I'm saying. Exactly. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Okay, well, thank you. Well, stop the recording.